0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with David Kaufman, who is the Director of Global Strategies at Nixon Peabody LLP. In his role, he manages and helps develop strategy for the firm's international practice, international offices, and relationships with law firms around the world. On today's show, we talk about how should companies go about thinking of networking and community building? When should a company join a chamber of commerce and how should they position themselves to get the most out of it? Are there certain gotchas in laws or the ways companies conduct business when they enter new countries? When startups expand into new countries, what should they be thinking and much more? All right, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we have an amazing guest who, well this interviews probably been 2 years in the works, I would say. Maybe even a little I think longer, longer
1: than that. I think it was pre-pandemic that we talked about
0: it. Yeah. Cause we did, we met in a coffee shop yeah. and we talked about it. Cafe then. Trieste in downtown San Francisco. So gosh, yeah, it's been three years then. That's crazy. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I thought you were just ghosting me. Frankly, I was. The whole pandemic was a shame just exactly. to push the interview back a little bit. further. Exactly. That was it. I mean, to me, honestly, that the three years, I'm just clumping it into one. I yeah. mean, That's how I'm kind of looking at it. But okay. Okay. For the interview, David, you've had an incredible career. Can you give our audience a little bit of background? of your career up into this point, before we dive into the questions.
1: Well, currently I'm the global strategies at the international law firm of Nixon Peabody. So I run our international practice. I help clients from all over the world do business here in the U.S. I help clients from the U.S. do business all over the world. But to prepare me for this interesting business, I grew up in a small town in central Pennsylvania, Altoona, Pennsylvania. I never dreamed that I'd be doing international business. I never dreamed that I would be living in San Francisco. And I had retail and wholesale apparel businesses prior to this and joined the big law world about 20 years ago, worked for a couple of firms, but ended up increasingly focusing my practice and my efforts on international business. I've done a lot of long time work in China. I went to china thirty five years ago and started a business, so I've been doing business in China for well over three decades, and I have spent a lot of time kind of helping international startups come to America to become successful. so I also being here in San Francisco, I do have quite a bit of work with startups and Silicon Valley enterprises. but I think we'll talk about a little bit. I've seen over the years over twenty years. Silicon Valley has moved farther and farther north. So we're sitting here in in Burlingame, I guess, and this is kind of the southern end of Silicon Valley as opposed to what it used to be.
0: With all that you've mentioned, I'm surprised you didn't tell our audience about your bounty hunting career, (laughs) (laughs) 15-second radio snippet career the professional wrestling career and...
1: Well, I think what John's referring to is that I don't actually look like someone that works for an international law firm. I have long hair, I have a long beard. Right now I'm wearing a leather jacket and jeans and a t-shirt. But I think that's all part of it. I mean, one of the things I think is important that you have to be authentic. I was more traditional back in the day, I'd say when I first started in this business. But as the years have progressed, I've become more successful. I've become a little bit more like I am now. And I think that's played into the success. So if one lesson is be your authentic self. Of course, I have to mention the fact that it helps. I swim in the bay every day I can. I'm an aquatic park. I'm a South End Rowing Club member and I do Ironman triathlon. Really? Ironman? When was the last one you did? I did it on. I did the half Ironman in Oceanside this past weekend. Jeez, how'd you train for that? And what's the recovery like? I swam yesterday and I ran today. So there's a recovery. There's not a lot of recovery. I ran a short distance today. The race was kind of interesting, though, because I, and I posted this to LinkedIn, but I was halfway through my ride, about 32 miles in the ride, and going up a steep hill, and my chain broke on my bicycle. Oh. And if you know anything about road bikes, like that's the one thing, like, unless you are really good and have all the right tools, like that's kind of like a death knell. But I was able to get, I waited, to get, it and someone came by, and I was able to get it fixed and I kept going. But I joked that, like, the, the sag the the van came along and the woman was like so are you are you gonna pack it in and I said I actually hadn't even thought about it but no I want to continue and she goes okay so she called the tech people to come in but and a friend of mine say like you didn't think that you weren't gonna finish I was like no I was already there I was already had a great ride I was going and my LinkedIn post I said I don't know if I can say this on bike but shit happens like it's you just have to deal with it
0: so how does a chain break in a triathlon compare to maybe companies. Coming overseas, opening up into new markets.
1: I think exactly the same situation. I mean, because you're coming here with all the best expectations. I talk to clients and they come here for lots of different reasons. A company from Israel or the England or France. You know, they've listened to the Silicon Valley podcast. They've watched the Silicon Valley TV show. They read the Wall Street Journal and they think this is it. This is the place they have to be. But in reality, a lot of them are not prepared for it. Their technology is not mature. Their management structure is not mature. Their financial structure is not mature. We find them that their legal structure is not they're not up to snuff. So uh, they come here and they're going, like I was going up that hill. And they're going and something happens. They have a, with, a, with an inventor or they have some issue or they're, they lose a contract or something doesn't happen. One of the things we see, the two big issues now that we're seeing with companies coming from outside the U.S., and setting up shop here in, in America is data privacy is number one. A lot of companies think, because this is Silicon Valley, lots of these are technology companies, a lot of SAS companies, apps, things like that. And they think, well, I'm GDPR compliant. So I'm compliant with the European Union. So I'm good, right? Right? I'm good. Like David, I'm good, right? I'm like, no, you're not good because GDPR is not the standard in America. We, and in fact, we have 50 different state privacy laws.
0: Welcome to California. <laughs> exactly.
1: California is the most, the weirdest baby. And so a lot of them don't don't understand that, that they have to, and they get tripped up very easily on that. The second big issue that a lot of startups come into are the concept of employment. So folks will call me up, I'll get referred to a client and they'll say, David, we're thinking about coming to the U.S. and we're thinking about hiring some people. We want to talk to you about that. And then I talked a little bit more about what the people will be doing. And then they admit, well, we actually have some people already here in the U.S. working for us. And then I said, "Oh, okay, but don't worry because they're not really employees. They're just we're just paying them as consultants." I said, "Okay, well, did they work for anybody else? Well, well, well no. Do you tell them what to do? Oh, yeah. Did they? You give them their computer and all the other equipment that they use? Oh, yeah." I said, "Well, you probably have an employee on your hand, especially in California." So those are the things that, you know, can really
0: trip them up. I just like how it sounds like the more you talk to them, the more they dig their own (laughs) grave. I
1: mean, that's it. I think the other issue in a lot of places around the world, especially like in China and other places in Asia, the concept of a lawyer and working, talking to a law firm, it's not the same in that we try, I try to encourage them, tell us everything that's wrong. Like tell us everything that's going because having us trying to dig into it and find out about it later, is not a good situation. Come and tell us everything that you're doing. We can fix it. Most people ask me, like, what I do. And a lot of people say, Oh, you're a fixer. Like, well, like, like Michael Clayton. I said, Well, not exactly. I'm not as good looking as George Clooney. I'll tell you that much. But, but the, the idea is, yeah, we try to fix problems. We try to make things go, go smoothly for you. But if we don't know, like, the worst thing to happen is if you don't tell us what's going on. And then we, we hit a road bump either with a, someone that is in business or a government regulator
0: or something else. So then one of these companies that are thinking of entering the US market or setting up in San Francisco. How far in advance should they start having these conversations? As soon as
1: possible, because they should be thinking about like, first of all, why are they coming here? I've worked with with companies that I, many years ago, I got a referral from a client that was looking to come to the U.S. And basically it was from a law firm in the U.K. And they said, oh, we want you to help them get a lease because they're going to be le- rent, leasing space in Mountain View. And I said, okay. And so I go start talking to the CEO, and he and I said, Well, what are you doing? And what are you doing in, in, in the Bay Area? And he goes, Oh, we're setting up a, a help desk. And I said, well, why? I said, well, our other help desk is in the Baltics and we need one in the U.S. And I said, well, this is the most expensive real estate you could find and the most expensive probably personnel costs you can have for a help desk. And so we gradually talked, talked through the issues and I said, well, they are probably other place." I'm on the board of the Chamber of Commerce in San Francisco. I want business to come here, but we don't need to have every business here. And it certainly doesn't make a lot of sense. They eventually, I think they, they settled on Salt Lake City to put their offices, their help desk. And then they called me up and they said, David, do I need you should talk to our, uh, our vice president of sales, our new U.S. vice president of sales, because he won't move to our headquarters in Salt Lake City. And I said, where are your headquarters? He won't move to our U.S. headquarters in Salt Lake City. I said, you don't have a headquarters. You have a help desk in Salt Lake City. Where does he want to live? And said, where does he want to work out of? And they said, Las Vegas. And I said, well, I can think of no better place in America to have a sales office than Las Vegas. They eventually did end up here because they set up a R&D facility, which I think this is the best place for that. But I think it underscores the fact that international companies tend to confuse what a headquarters are and where they're incorporated. Oftentimes, our attorneys advise clients to incorporate in Delaware, on a C-corporation in Delaware, pretty standard. But I can't tell you how many times clients will say, I don't want to go to Delaware. I, why am I going there? Aside from Joe Biden being from there, I know nothing about Delaware. We don't want to have an office there. We don't want to have to do anything there. Why do we have to be in Delaware? And we have to explain the difference between incorporating and operating. That so You can set up in Delaware. You never have to go there. You never do anything there. You can have all your, your operations in uh, any state you want to have it. You never have to go to Delaware.
0: Okay. So, doesn't sound like you're just kind of legal advice for these companies. It sounds like you're growth, expansion, operations, consultant. How many hats do you wear?
1: <laughs> well, I think the idea is that because I'm not an attorney. So the advantage I have is that I have a business background. And so I'm the connector. I'm the one that will help them connect to the lawyers at our firm. But as I said, a lot of times folks don't know exactly what they need. I will get calls from folks that are looking to come to the U.S. And when I talk to them, what they really need is an HR professional or they really need is a real estate person or they need an accountant. I try not to limit my investment banker. You know, there's Sean Flynn guy. He's a pretty good investment banker. So, you know.
0: David's going to be back on this show for <laughs> sure.
1: A lot of times they don't know people. We had a situation a couple of years ago where we had a conflict. We couldn't represent that. I got to reach out from a, con- a very small country in the world company. They're, they needed some help in the U.S. and uh, we couldn't help them legally with on their legal stuff because we had a conflict. And uh, I remember talking to the, the attorney that I was talking to. He said, well, they can find someone else. I said, actually, they can't find anybody else. I'm the only person they know in America, I think. And so we found them another attorney and a smaller firm and went that extra mile because I really feel strongly that we need to help. We need to provide that kind of service and help to them.
0: Question on that one. And that's something I don't think has actually come up on the show ever. The conflict of interest check that lawyers have to do before taking on a new client. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then I want to dive back into the expansion and business development.
1: Love my job. I love working for the law firm. I work with incredibly smart people. And I love the fact that lawyers in the U.S. really played a different role than I'd say maybe in England and maybe some other places in the Western countries. But the idea, and I don't know, I always go back to the Al Pacino Um, Injustice for all like that's that is your lawyer like he is going to vigorously defend you whatever comes and I think for a lot of business people that's kind of a weird concept that you have this person that that is that's only in your corner. And the only way we can only be in your corner is we can't represent other people that, you know, that you might be in conflict with. You might, you can't have both sides of it. You can't be on both sides of the deal. Now, there are exceptions. We can have waivers and things like that. But the idea is you want to make it so that, you know, that your lawyer is only representing you, only thinking about your interests. And there's nothing that's going to cloud what he's thinking to protect your interests. And that's very different. I'd say in other parts of the world, lawyers don't act that way and that they don't necessarily have that kind of dedication. They're not going to be in business. They're not going to be doing other things, compete with you, but they're really only representing you.
0: I keep thinking of those lawyers from the movie Idiocracy. I'm not sure if you saw that movie. You got to check it out. It's become more of a documentary, I think, than an actual movie. Uh, Matt Judge, the Beavis butthead guy. But okay, okay. Enter in a new market, how should a company think about that? I mean, there's that one that you talked to that said, okay, Silicon Valley for this, Utah that, Vegas. What should their thoughts be kind well, of their plans? Well, I think
1: people have to think again. Why are they coming here? A lot of them come here because this is where the money is. It's kind of like the why do you rob banks, things like that. And it's Silicon Valley Bank, it's a sore subject at the moment. But but I think the idea is that a lot of our clients come here because they want to raise capital, or they have they have an investor in the U.S. And we're seeing more and more that U.S. that U.S. investors they're frankly uncomfortable in investing in a company. That is unless they have a their a large private equity firm or venture capital firm that has symmetry operations in their home country, which there are tons of people that do that. But if you're a family office and you've only done US deals, what's a little bit uncomfortable to invest in a Israeli LTD? They much prefer to have all the investments go through a USC Corp because they understand the documents, they understand what their legal rights are. The last thing they want to do is to deposit their $8 million in the bank account for some foreign company. And then all their rights are all adjudicated through the legal world of this far off land that they're not that familiar with.
0: With that, do you think the company needs to set up operations start actually having sales before they start talking to investors? Or can they do it all at once? Or the clients that you've worked with, what's a better success route?
1: I think the if you're coming to the U.S., I think that the U.S. investors are very sophisticated. So they're going to be asking really difficult questions. And sometimes when I talk to companies, especially I've worked with some incubators and some accelerators where they primarily have startups from outside the U.S. And occasionally some of them are like unprepared for these really tough questions. Like how far are you away from your technology actually being a real thing? I met with a company a couple years ago, I remember and the technology was awesome. I have to say it was like earth shattering. And the person that, that the entrepreneur was this really charismatic woman who described her technology and then I finally said, like, that's just amazing. Like, where is your proof of concept? Where where are you? And she said, well, we haven't proved anything yet. We have no, we don't have anything. Yet. And I was like, OK, I'm not sure you could raise money. Like, you're good, but I don't think you're that good. But like, I, I don't necessarily think anyone's going to give you the money until you can actually prove that your technology works. And she was a bit upset by that. But I think so. I think you have to bring your products along. I think in some places, the government or other, they get, you know, they can be coddled a bit and get far along the process, but they're not prepared for the rough and tumble world of the US market, which is a huge and complicated and difficult market. China is another complicated, difficult market. I think a lot of companies rush into that market as well. We were working with this company that was looking to come into both China and the US. And we eventually kind of came to the conclusion that they weren't prepared for either market. We explained that they had that there were four or five other companies doing exactly was an app and had four or five other competitors all were drenched in China and they they had no Mandarin, no, no native Mandarin speakers on their design team and their UI was was pretty poor when it came to the Mandarin side of things. And so even though you think this is what I want to do, it doesn't always work out that
0: way. So what was the, after you told them, Hey, you aren't ready, did they kind of cut you as? (laughs) No, we,
1: no, they eventually, they went to Europe and tried in Europe because Europe's a little bit easier. I think they had less competition. They they had some European money in them and things like that. So they actually eventually, they went to Europe in two or three countries and then got their legs.
0: Do you think that maybe being prepared is where companies make the most mistakes when entering new markets or what other advice might you be able to share with it, a companies that are wanting to enter Silicon Valley, the whole broad area of Silicon Valley?
1: I think that they have to number one, get good advisors. That's a shameless plug, I guess, for folks like me and you. But I think it, it's, it's, I think a lot of times people come and think they know everything. My big pet peeve now, I call it Google Esquire because I have clients that call up and they'll say, okay, I want to do X. I'm going to do one, two, three, four, and five. And I've explained to them, well, we can talk about this, but I can tell you just off the top of my head, I think one and two are probably illegal. Three, probably not market. Four, probably not a good idea. And five, I don't understand. Like that's." Like that's, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And I say like, what? Well, how did you come up with these like very specific, like really specific, like business plan strategies? Oh, I looked it up online. Like, ah, that's the worst thing you can do. So, I mean, I think the idea is get people that you can trust, get people that ask a lot of questions. I get a lot of referrals from people that say, that clearly have done their homework. And they've asked them. I talked to and so he said you're good. And I talked to this person and they corroborated that those are the good people you should be trusting. And it should be the most expensive person. It should be the cheapest person. I think no one should say it's going to be easy because nothing's easy. I think that's the other thing. They say, oh, we'll take care of everything for you. Everything can be complicated. I think I can say that we've done a lot of this. We've seen what the issues are. We know what the challenges are, but every company is unique and has their own specific challenges and opportunities. So Finding all those good people, and there is there's a, there's a great ecosystem of folks that help international businesses succeed here, and from accountants that work on lots of international businesses. So I think part of the thing is like if you are thinking about it, talk to the people, and if you get the sense that this is the first company that they've helped come to the U.S., probably you should be not thinking about maybe moving on to somebody else. When I can tell them we've I've helped hundreds of companies that up here in the U.S., I think that gives them a little bit of comfort.
0: I like the answer that nothing should be easy or nothing's easy. I've had so many conversations where, oh, this will be an easy transaction. You're like, no, no, <laughs> it's six to nine months of pain. No, it's, it's going to take a lot longer. And there's always something that comes up. There's always roadblocks. There's always skeletons. There's always this or that. So just the, oh, no, it should be easy. It's like, no, that's not reality. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's some things about America that are pretty cool. I mean, so one of the things I try to explain is that, so like, if you want to set up a company, unlike lots of places, it's you have to file paperwork basically. It's a ministerial function. Like the the if you have the right name and the everything is cl- is clear and you pay the right fee, del the Secretary of State of Delaware will give you your incorporation. You don't have to prove that you're a good person. You don't have to pay off a government official. You don't have to jump through nine million hoops to prove that you're whatever. You will get something set up. So that's and that's one of the good things. Other than that, things get more complicated. If you want to hire people, getting back to the employment thing, one of the challenges is that We don't have, it's employee at will mostly. Sometimes companies will come and they'll have a stack of employment agreements for everybody from the CEO of the company to the the person that keeps everything clean and tidy, neat and tidy. And I explained to them, like, maybe the CEO you're going to give a contract to, but probably not the rest of the people. And so they kind of understand that. But then they get very upset when they want to fire somebody. And we explained to them, well, there's a risk of litigation that could come from any employee that you fire. And I said, David, wait a minute. You just told me that I didn't need to have a contract. And now you're telling me that it's hard to fire people. I said, well, it's not hard to fire people. America is a very litigious place and things can happen.
0: What countries do you think might have the biggest challenges cultural wise in setting up a new company in Silicon Valley?
1: I think it's a great question because I think Israelis are fantastic. I work with Israeli companies, and a lot of Israelis speak English. They have a lot of familiarity with the U.S. But doing business in Israel is very different than doing business in the United States. So I think one of the problems when I work with Israelis is that they assume that they know what they're talking about, what they're doing, and in reality, it's very different. And then sometimes when they're working with Americans. Like we think, oh, this person knows a lot about America. They maybe spent time here, things like that. So, so it's there's this knowledge gap that occurs. Um, In that, when you come to from countries that have a completely different system, I mean, the Chinese system is very different than the US, the Indian system is very different than the US. It's not easy, but nothing's unsurmountable. I think the idea is that you can explain to people this is what you have to do. And I think you have to do it in in a culturally appropriate way. I have really tried to endeavor to not preach to, I mean, I have heard some really horrible situations where lawyers other advisors have really told clients like listen this is what you have to do. you're in the United States now this is what you have to do and I hate that I always explain to people its like our system is different and if you want to be successful you're gonna to have to kind of modulate what you're doing to accommodate how it goes on here so I'm not saying that your system's bad it's just different and when we have companies coming to your country I tell people the same way so I think I really try to be culturally, in terms of explaining to people, like, this is just the system, how it works here, and we'll help you kind of work through it. And that, that might be part of the fact that I, I grew up in this small town. I had no international experience whatsoever. I never dreamed that I would be doing something like this. And I tell people, I, I do a lot of work in China, but I'm not a Sinophile. I do a lot of work in England, but I'm not an Anglophile. I'm just very American. And so, I, I don't speak any other languages, which I think always throws people off a little bit and they think, well, how can you do international business if you're not like speak a lot of languages? I don't think I'm a particularly cultured person, but uh, as I said, I'm pretty authentic. I kind of look more like a bounty hunter than a lawyer. But I think people like the fact that what they see is what they get. When they know they talk to me, they know they're talking to an American. They know exactly where I'm coming from. And I'm going to give them my best assessment based upon where I'm sitting and what I'm doing. I'm not going to be trying to put on airs or overthink the situation.
0: So then what skill set in that do you think someone that does a lot of international business, what should they try to develop, gain, or learn?
1: Your departed grandmothers, you had an expression. She said, God gave you two ears and two eyes and one mouth. Use that you know, in proportion. And so you should be listening. You should be looking. And don't say so much. I think a lot of times when advisors get involved in things, we start talking and clearly I can talk. I'm not a, I'm not afraid of talking, but I think it's important that you, if you're working with international companies, ask a lot of questions, see what they're actually, you know, like getting back to that story about like, I could have just gone ahead and helped that guy set up his help desk in Silicon Valley. That probably cost him a lot of money. But I said, I'm curious, like, like, why do you want to do this? Tell me about your business. Why does this work? How does this work? What do you want to do? And I think if you open yourself up to asking people questions and thinking about, well, how does it work? How will you work differently here in the U.S.? And then you'll, you can relate to the person on a different level.
0: And then now, I mean, Silicon Valley, you're kind of the legend of legends when it comes to business development. Everyone knows your name. Everyone obviously (laughs) knows how you look as well. Give us a little, some secrets or some tips on how to utilize your time for business development. Should you be looking at different committees, different organizations? How should a founder of a company or someone doing business development at a company or someone arriving here go about building that network?
1: I like to say, or try to say, yeah. I can remember I was at a network event and talking to a guy and really hit it off. And I said, that we should grab lunch. And he was a little bit more standoffish. He goes, like, why should we have lunch? I said, well, I'd love to continue this conversation. He said, well, what do you you think we would gain from having the conversation and having lunch? I was like, I have no idea. I said, I think we probably could maybe do some work together or maybe not, or I can help you or you can help me. I said, part of my life strategy is just meet a lot of people, talk to a lot of people. So I think I like to say I I try not. Sometimes I'm strategic. There people ask me like, well, Do you kind of focus on certain clients? And I said, sometimes I'll get that. I call it, my wife calls it my spidey sense. Like sometimes I'll say, this is a really good client. Like this is a client that I'm going to go after. And I will fly across the world to meet the client. Like I will do anything and everything to get myself there. But otherwise I try to cast a pretty wide net. So have lunches, dinners, drinks, coffee. So the pandemic was really tough for me because a lot of my arsenal, I couldn't like deploy. And just try to say yes. If there is an event, like I travel a lot, so I can't always be around to do things. So, like, but I look at my calendar and I'll say, like, oh, yeah, I'm here on that day. Okay, yes, I will go to that event and not think to myself, oh, it's far or then what am I going to get out of it or what's going to happen and things like that? Or wouldn't it be easy just to sit at home and watch friends reruns? But so I think you just
0: have to do it. I'm kind of curious. Did you ever get lunch with that guy? I did, yeah. And we did do business together. Crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean I have some great story. I mean like I was telling the story the other day that I had lunch so I like there used to be the restaurant at the it's now the Four Seasons Embarcadero. It was called Orofo now, but it used to be the Bull and the Monarch, I guess. And it was great three, three, three and California. And the the restaurant there has this, that kind of had a table that I'd sit at a lot. And I really liked it because it is a walkway and people would walk past and, you know, traveled a lot. So like I actually got three pieces of business when people were walking through the walkway, seeing that I was in town and calling me up and saying, can you meet with me or can you meet with somebody else? Or can we talk? Because they had just saw me there. So I call them like my lucky table. The, the other great story was, that I uh, to pull out my visual aid here. I was having lunch with a buddy, and we're trying to figure a way that we could work together. And it's like ah, I don't know. It doesn't seem like we. He was happy with his law firm, and they they weren't doing things that that kind of hit my sweet spot and things like that. And I think we kind of agreed at some point in time, maybe during that lunch, to like only be friends and not to work together. And I uh, went to buy lunch. I said, oh let me buy you lunch." And I went to buy lunch, and I had my oyster card, which is the that that time it's the London Underground payment, like the Clipper yeah. card here. And I had it like sitting i just come back from London and he looks at me, he says, why do you have an oyster? And I said, well, we do a lot of work in London. I have an office there. I just came back there. I thought I had told him this, but you know, maybe it was anything. She said, oh, I, we have a serious problem there. Would you know someone that could help me? And I was like, absolutely. I know lots of people in London that can help you. And it turned out that they had a problem there. They had a problem here. and it became, So we actually did work together. But I say it's all from the oyster card in the wallet that you can get business.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, talking about right, right location, right time, right everything.
1: But if I didn't go to lunch with him, if I wasn't reaching out to him, none of that would happen. That wouldn't have happened if I was, again, sitting at home watching Friends rerun.
0: I also like how you keep going back to the Friends rerun. <laughs> I think most of my guests would say Star Trek. Okay, so you sit on, I think, the board of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. How valuable is it to join a chamber as a company, early stage company in a city?
1: You know, I think, I think chambers are becoming not your grandfather's chambers. You know, I think they're becoming much, you know, I think the San Francisco chamber is endeavoring to do a lot more work in the tech community and things like that. So I think it's either the chamber, it's other organizations. I think you really have to get involved in an organization that you will be involved with. So like my advice to folks is get involved, sign up for things. But be measured because being on the board means nothing. Putting on your resume, it's nothing. You know, what? who cares? If you're not engaged, you're not involved, you're not going to meetings, you're not participating in committees, it's a total waste of time. So I talk to people starting out in like business development, I say, join a board that you feel passionate about, you're interested in. And what are the good committees to be on? You want to be head of the the, the nominating committee because that means you meet all the people that, that would possibly be other board members. Those are the good groups to be on. But spend time on it. If you're not going to be able to spend time on working on it, don't join the board.
0: Are there any other organizations? I mean, you'd mentioned, find the ones you're passionate. Is there any, I don't know, ones that you've discovered in the Bay Area and that companies come in here? might want to check out?
1: Well, I think the universities are great. I mean, I think so getting involved, especially if you have interest in technology. I got involved in the Technion, which is a big research university in Israel, in Haifa. And I joined the local kind of fundraising board for that. And it's been awesome because I get to to see the professors coming through and hear about their technologies. I see some of the students come through. They have a huge alumni base of fantastic former students that have companies so I mean, I think it's for me. It's been a good example of doing well by doing good. I've made some really fantastic connections, but it also helps me kind of give back and get involved and things like that. So I think, but I think the universities. I think if you talk to folks about where they can get ma- meaningful interactions, getting involved in a university, in their alumni group, or with a research foundation or things like that, it, it's great. I've I went to the Wharton School, both my undergraduate and MBA, and uh, I guess maybe twenty years ago now I decided. I'd not been involved in our alumni, but I decided I want to get more involved. And so the reunions are coming up, and I'm particularly interested in meeting people that are here. And so I've always, I've hosted for every reunion we've had. I think the last five or six, I've hosted a an event for the alum for the alumni in the Bay Area, and that's kind of my thing. I'm kind of interested in that. Other stuff, I don't find all that interesting. Like I don't care like. The president was here. That was fine, whatever. But I don't care to meet her, the new president of Penn. okay, or whatever. That's not that doesn't get me excited. What gets me excited to meet 40 or 50 local Wharton grads and see what they've done and hear what they're doing. That's interesting to me.
0: I'm kind of shocked you didn't tap into that Warren MBA network from day one. (laughs) Just put on pause for 20 years.
1: Well, you know, I think it's interesting. Like I get, I think about that. And I say like, I think having a, the Wharton, my Wharton education didn't really, it came up a lot when I got out, people would comment on it. Oh yeah. Smart guy, Wharton MBA, things like that. And then it does go, it does actually go into kind of a hiatus because you're not judged on your qualifications, you know, your qualifications, you're on what you're doing you're really judged on what you're doing. So if you're delivering, it doesn't make any difference. You could have got MBA from McDonald's University. It doesn't, doesn't, no, it doesn't matter if you're knocking on the park. But I will say that as I get older and you become more of that wisdom provider, then that's when I hear it more and more. Like some people, like sometimes, because, you know, you get these things where people will give you a referral and they'll, you can see the, the uh, people don't think to like get rid of the stuff be- below the thing they sent to you. So you could really like, like really, why are you suggesting this guy? And like, and more often than not, they say, "Oh, he's a really smart guy." I don't know how smart I am, but I did go to Wharton. They'll say Wharton MBA, and I see that more and more. I think in the last five or six years than I did. Maybe the 20 years before that.
0: Crazy! You're also a board member for Global SF. What's happening there?
1: So Global SF is an organization that really is focused on, it's right up my alley. I helped bound it because it's focused on helping businesses from outside the U.S. set up shop and basically in San Francisco. But now it's opened up to the whole world, into the whole state. We're doing a lot of work all over California. And uh, an economic development organization, because in comparison to a lot of other places in the world, California and San Francisco, we don't have the kind of robust economic development infrastructure that you see in lots of other places. We don't give in a lot of incentives out for business to come in. We don't have, we used to have, the chamber used to have an economic development program that kind of went by wayside. They're trying to re- reinvigorate it. But in comparison to a lot of other even smaller places, I think the assumption had always been, Oh, we're California or we're Silicon Valley or we're San Francisco. Like, what do we need help for? So, I think Global SF tries to do that on a global scale.
0: How well do you think those incentives actually incentivize companies to set up operations or not set up operations in different states or cities?
1: I think it really depends on the business. We've worked with a lot of companies that are in the kind of heavy, heavy manufacturing, and there it really does mean a different, make a difference. If you are really Dependent on producing a commodity or using commodities, things like that, you really, those things can, can make a difference. But if you're a technology company, you're having five or six people, you're having coders sitting somewhere, things like that doesn't make that much difference. I think the idea is that you want to be in the spot where things are going to happen. You're going to have that, the ability to interact with folks, talk to people, things like that's going to be more important than a couple hundred thousand dollars in tax savings, especially if you're, if you want to grow your business. I was, Speaking to a bunch of students at USF, University of San Francisco last night. And I explained to them, I said, if you have a basic business, if you have like a, and I had that when I was in the, in my previous jobs, you have a retail store or you have a plumbing contractor or something like that, you do $10 million in sales. You work really hard and you might grow that to 11 million the next, next year, or maybe 15 million, you might buy a competitor or whatever, but you're not going to be have exponential growth. And therefore the stakes are a little bit lower. Like people ask like, do you need, what kind of legal advice do you need for that? I'd say you probably, you always should have good legal advice, but it's not as critical. But I think one of the things that I think is interesting when you talk to like startups that want to have that exponential growth, you got to do it right at the beginning. Because if you screw things up, You know, it will hurt you as you you want want to take that ten million dollar company in sales and make it a hundred million dollar company or a billion dollar company. If you screw up your cap table, or you mess up your IP, or you don't
0: have your employment agreements in place, you know, you're toast. That's super fascinating because yeah, we've had people on the show in the past talk about the importance of building that foundation for companies and to take that extra time and make sure that foundation is solid. Because the more solid that foundation, the higher the building can be. And it's really interesting that hey. That you put in perspective as well, and just how it keeps it's a recurrent theme on this show that the guests keep bringing up.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, and I think the idea is that you should be constantly asking yourself what can I be doing better? What can I be doing differently? Is this the best practice? I think that shortchanging. Yourself on your legal work is a bad idea. I think just generally everything. I think the getting back to the whole business development side of things. One of the things I kind of believe in is your personal brand and how do you build your personal brand. And I think the there's lots of ways you can screw it up, but I think you should always be constantly investing and in trying to take that call, trying to do what you can. I spent a lot of my time, frankly, on things that I know are going to know, go nowhere from a business perspective. In terms of someone needs help, restaurant recommendations or. You need to rent the bike for a race or whatever. It's like, I love doing it. It's like, great. And I don't think about it that way. But I think it's when I was telling the students yesterday, I said, it's the idea that when you, I don't have my phone with me, but when you get your phone and the person calls and it says, Sean Flynn, that's the brand. That's the three sec- the three milliseconds that you see that and you it, your initial reaction is like, oh my God, why is he calling me?
0: I thought I blocked Click. him by now. Click. Jeez.
1: Or what you really want is to say, ah, oh, great. I really would love to talk to him. Like, that's what you really want. Or like, I can't wait to hear what he has to say, or I'm really interested. So I think that's the difference is that you do that. And, and, every, and I'm, I'm constantly worried that like, oh, what side of that line I'm on? And I called somebody and, the, and they didn't pick up. And I thought, to myself, oh, I guess I've gone over this edge. But I like when they call me back and they say, I didn't even listen to the voicemail message. I saw your thing. I was out of the line. I called you back right away. I was like, okay, good. I feel a
0: little bit better now. All right. And David, with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? And if you have any last minute, either stories or wisdom you want to leave our listeners with, this is the time to do so.
1: Um, so uh, if you want to contact me, I have a, have a, you know, nixonpeabody.com. You can look me up there. I'm on LinkedIn, David Kaufman. I'm on uh, Instagram. You'll see lots of pictures of me racing. Uh, it's a very, it's a very athletically oriented. San Francisco 2020 is my handle. And there's a whole story behind that, but that's for another time. But I think it's, I think America is a great place to set up shop. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're going to come here and raise capital, develop new technologies, but you just have to be prepared for the fact that it's not going to be easy, but. There are lots of people like me and like Sean and lots of accountants and other lawyers and other professionals that are here to walk you through that process.
0: Fantastic. And with that, for our audience out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital. Connect with me at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com or on LinkedIn. Love to have a conversation. And with that, David, I want to thank you for taking the time today after three year, three plus years, <laughs> four plus years to record this episode with me of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only before making any decisions, consult a professional.